Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. On last week's show, we talked about Deliverance, John Borman's 1972 survival thriller about four Atlanta businessmen whose masculinity is put to the test when they face the twin hostilities of nature and mountain men on a weekend canoe trip downriver. Masculinity is also the primary theme of this week's film, Jane Campion's new western, The Power of the Dog. Set in 1925 Montana, the film stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Phil Burbank, a wealthy rancher who has a habit of sizing up the weak and bullying them for sport. When his put-upon brother George, played by Jesse Plemons, marries Rose, a widow, played by Kirsten Dunst, Phil finds a new target for his hostility. As Rose struggles to settle into her new life on the ranch, eventually turning to drink, her teenage son, Peter, played by Cody Smith McPhee, looks like a true fish out of water, with a wispy frame and an intellectual manner that particularly bothers Phil. Working from Thomas Savage's 1967 novel, Campion picks away at the roots of Phil's volatile behavior while revealing the impact of his toxic masculinity on everyone around him, not least himself. We'll talk about it after the break. little lady made these. I did, sir. Well, Brother Phil? Open up the gate, let him out. You sure he's not ready? Go on, let him out. A man was made by patience and the odds against him. For what kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother? Peter! If I did not save her. So, what did everyone think? Uh, Genevieve, this is on uh, a movie about your favorite theme. Uh, masculinity Uh, yes but it's directed by a woman yes okay Uh, it's strong enough you would say it's strong enough for a man but it's made by a woman by a woman yes Yes. okay oh is that gonna have to be the title no it can't be the title of this it's too it's too it's too much but it's a good one that's what that was right off the right off the dome yep um no i i enjoyed this movie a whole lot as you predicted i i I would scott 
just to just jump right to the end, I think like this is one of my favorite endings of a film in in a long time. Like it just dropped together mm-hmm. perfectly in the last uh, couple minutes, and uh, if it was a, a very satisfying uh, reveal that at the same time didn't feel uh, like it let anyone off the any of the characters off the hook or it didn't like you know engage in any sort of like last minute softening let you know i i really i think all of the main characters with the exception of maybe jesse plemons's have like a really strong arc and i think that's especially impressive in the case of benedict cumberbatch's character phil who just starts out such a bastard and it seems like he's going to be this one note bastard <laughs> through you know throughout just kind of hammering away at Kirsten Dunst's character and it's not that he ever gets more sympathetic but he gets a lot more nuanced in his assholery and uh you know the the layers reveal themselves in a really satisfying way same thing with with Cody Smith McPhee that dynamic was uh, really, really compelling to me in the film. And uh, yeah, it's uh, a beautiful film that was clearly shot in New Zealand and not Montana. (laughs) My God, my God. You've been to Montana. uh, It's like, no, that is not Montana. Yeah, but but you know, apparently, like they they built this whole ranch, you know, the, like just uh, you know, f- taking a, the scenery out of it, the production design of it, um, mm-hmm. is you know lovely. It's kind of in the same era that uh, the film we discussed on our last pairing, uh, passing, uh, you know, so it's it's got kind of the uh, similar style of the of the era, but in a completely different setting and context. So that was just kind of interesting for me to to watch right on. Uh, right back to back like that but um yeah i don't really have a lot of criticisms of this film other than i i do think that jesse plemons's character is kind of just a, a non-starter or I, I didn't like really find another level to him there but maybe i'm, I'm missing something i would like to hear if uh, you guys disagree there but uh also what you think of the film well i'm i'm into uh new zealand as the old west uh there's a movie yeah. called slow west which also stars cody uh, spit mcphee uh came out a few years ago that that uses new zealand as the west and it's like it's kind of like when you see the west and spaghetti westerns and it, it's it's you know it's not you know it's spain or italy but it, <laughs> it doesn't feel like the west but it feels like this kind of neat movie idea of the west uh, that said would it have really been awful to just like make it some anonymous location in the west versus montana where a place everyone knows what it looks like yeah probably not <laughs> but uh, you know i hadn't really thought about Plymouth's character of being a little flat in terms of his development i think you're right i, I just find Plymouth such a compelling presence yeah. no and, and, and maybe he also, that's why it stood out to me because i'm always expecting something really interesting of a jesse plemons character and it just yeah. kind of sat there and he's also really good at like suggesting a lot that's just not on the surface and you never mm-hmm. really get that extra layer here he's just the guy he is which is yeah mostly nice a little ineffectual you know uh, yeah. uh means well dapper dresser uh, i did, did like to enjoy <laughs> his uh, wardrobe in this yes. um but i know i like this film a lot i i had not i need to catch up with top of the lake but this was the first you know first oh first my gosh that, the, first, thing well, for me. The, the first season of top of the lake is is absolutely fantastic in the second season no 
No, not okay. well, fantastic. Anyway, but but, but nonetheless, really like good. like I uh, uh you know it just been a while since I'd seen anything by her, so it was it was great kind of being back in in Campion land and and uh, boy howdy are we this is this is very piano like uh, extremely. Know. Yeah, uh, it, it honestly I felt uh, I was kind of bummed that we'd already done the piano mm-hmm. uh, because that <laughs> that feels like the 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 yeah yeah because uh, it forced me to watch Deliverance, but also just it it feels like a very rich pairing with this one. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. And one one of the things that really the one of the things that the two have in common for me is that they are not that subtle about the theme of the of the films i mean they she's not afraid to to kind of make to be a little bit on the blunt side in terms of like you know what the movie is about i mean you know the piano is you know about uh a piano it's about a piano of course (laughs) could not be more literal right there in the title could could not be more literal in that sense but also about about this woman who is you know mute you know and i mean in, in the significance and speaks through her piano and then, i mean the, the the symbolism of that is not subtle exactly and, and i don't think i don't think the kind of masculinity that benedict cumberbatch that phil uh displays here is subtle either but but it's just the way it's done everything is about the way <laughs> you know it's a film so it's about the way it's made and the in the way uh these themes are carried across and the way the film unfolds and and i think it, it, you're right in that in that phil in particular is a deeper and more complicated character than uh he appears at first and so and so though as he appears at first is perfectly compelling on its own i mean you know those early scenes of him in the you know with that dinner scene in the inn where he burns peter's flowers and and later when he has his own little dueling banjos moment with kirsten dunn's character who's trying fruit <laughs> with not a lot of luck to learn a piece on the piano you know he's perfectly terrifying in those scenes and in a way i d- would never have expected benedict cumberbatch to be it's not he's not the first person to come to mind mm-hmm. if i'm thinking about you know hyper masculine montana ranchers it's not like oh cast benedict cumberbatch why are you even looking at anybody else so uh i, I appreciate that about the movie too so uh, you know I, you know i saw it with our good friend noel murray at the chicago critics film festival so i got to see it projected which is great and then i watched it again you know last night and and today just to kind of refresh my memory and uh, uh really appreciated you know a lot of other things about it particularly johnny greenwood's score yes. uh, which is phenomenal yes. <laughs> in which carries the film it almost not quite to the degree that michael nyman's score does of the piano but like it's significant and important to the film's impact it keeps you on edge too yes. you know I, I mean there's so much so much tension anyway but even in scenes where where you wouldn't necessarily read that degree of dramatic tension it just it just it, it's 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 unsettling and like in the literal sense of the word mm-hmm. what well, reminded me a lot of what carter burwell always said about doing scores for the coen brothers he always likened himself to a tailor and he was kind mm. of fitting the fitting the films like a suit and i felt that almost in a scene to scene way with the power of the dog where it just felt like oh this piece of music and this you know it can be often quite simple or beautiful in one scene or kind of you know unsettling and and you know a rhythmic and other scenes and it's just like it, it seemed like there was some piece of music that he had come up with uh that was gonna just kind of fit that scene in the, in the movie and it just that was really stopped in the second viewing is just how big of an impact that score has not to take anything away from camping in the cast but I, that was what came like well, that was my kind of my second viewing experience is kind of noticing the score a little bit more but I was kind of curious. I mean, this is a this is a western. You know, how, how do you feel like it fits in 
or questions, I guess, that whole tradition. Well, I think it's not not insignificant that it's a it's a late Western. I mean, it's 1925, and you kind of get, in some ways, you could see Phil, Cumberbatch character, as, as just doubling and tripling down on these masculine gestures as his way of life and and everything his his time is is passing the time for these sort of uh characters is passing obviously that's all tied up with his sexuality and identity issues that are that are that are uh play into his behavior as well but it's there's also kind of a last gasp element to what he's doing but also, and, and this is something that I find really fascinating about this, uh, that character is we get a little detail that he studied the classics at yeah. Oxford, was it? Yeah. You, know, you know, like, it's not like he was raised a, a hard bitten rancher, you know, like at some point, this was a sort of a decision he made to to live his life this way, you know, it wasn't necessarily uh, and, and I think that we kind of see that in uh, Jesse Plemons's uh, character, his brother, George. George, who seems a lot more comfortable and accepting of, you know, their wealth and their comfort, you know, like, like their their house is amazing. They're they're you know, his clothes are expensive. He can afford to buy a grand piano, you know, and it, I don't think that is necessarily in sync with, uh, you know, sort of the rugged cowboy image, you know, so it seems like Phil is kind of has adopted that and is presumably clinging to it out of his uh, sort of allegiance to Bronco Henry, which we will, of course, <laughs> need, to, need to get into. But it feels like maybe Bronco Henry is the, you know, the last gasp of, of mm. this. And uh, Phil is just sort of maybe playing at it a, a bit. Yeah, with Phil, it's almost like it's the fervency of a convert, but his religion is being a cowboy to the yeah, point where yes. even the other cowboys are like, you're, you're, you're kind of overdoing it, dude. Like the whole yeah. like, not not bathing element yeah, to it as right. well. Yeah. Like sleeping in his clothes. You know? I mean, it's, it's a weirdly funny movie at times, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, uh, and, and that, that being one of the funnier elements of it. Well, and I think Campion isn't afraid to like let us laugh at Phil, you know, like mm-hmm. like there is a really um, and this is also on, on, on Cumberbatch's performance, too. But like being able to be threatening and ominous, but also ridiculous and, you know, letting us see and acknowledge and laugh at that uh, ridiculousness while not taking away from the threat this character poses to the the other characters in the film. That's probably a good point to get into our, our Bronco Henry discussion, because on the one hand, it's, it's very sad. His, mm-hmm. The degree to which he's closeted and he can't uh, he has to feel to tamp down these feelings and get them uh, deep inside. But it's it's also kind of pathetic and funny his devotion to Bronco Henry in a way. I mean, I found this it is it is almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of like ritualistic masturbation and just mm-hmm. the. The shrine, the, the, the saddle shrine, shrine. and the, the, the <laughs> deep sentiment which which uh, he ta- with which he talks about Bronco Henry and just the name Bronco Henry is kind of funny too. But yeah. I yes. don't know. Uh, what do you guys think? No, I, I agreed. Though, there, though, I, I think I was talking to you all off the recording about Nolan and I having a lot of fun with the secret stash the of uh, of pornography that that Bronco Henry has kept, and it has made absolutely clear that this is his uh, his big box of porn, um, and, uh, and no one else's. Um, so, uh, 
you know, and again, I don't think that that I don't think that specific point was something that the film uh, was playing for laughs. But oh, I still thought found that kind of amusing. But yeah, I mean, there's a charis- there is a charisma here that is important, and and that gives uh, makes this character feel more palatable to us necessarily than if he were just a terrifying you know i think we can sense that there's something more at play we can sense as you all say that there's a ridiculousness to some of this behavior that that he is overcompensating or going a little bit over the top of it and we can see in his reaction to peter a mix of discomfort and and, in recognition and there's something a little his interest in peter is revealing in itself i think so uh so there's a lot of that stuff going on here and it is you know under the surface and i you know so that, that's something to admire about the film as far as the rest of it goes i mean i i like the way you put it keith about this being kind of a late time for the west as we understand it in westerns because you do have those signs of progress I mean, we didn't mention even the car i mean in none of this stuff is stuff and, that, and rose was a pianist at a movie theater too right that's interesting and she can't and, and she can't so readily kind of adapt what she does to you know the the formalities of what you might expect someone you know a more classically trained pianist to do you know she she Mm -hmm. could just kind of you know work the keys at a at a movie house which is not the same thing as being able to play you know johann strauss you know perfectly for guests those are two different two different skills and, and also expected of two different types of people from perhaps two different eras one other thing before i move on to the next question with regard to jesse plemons in the movie is i think that i don't think he i I feel like he's definitely a fourth character here rather than one of the main three uh Mm -hmm. he's out of the film for a lot of it for a good stretch you know it it really has much more to do with mother and son and phil so i think peter's out of it for a good stretch too yeah, like yeah. he doesn't, you know, like we there. There's a, a long segment where it seems like this is going to be a film about Phil and Rose, oh, that's and true. then it becomes about Phil and Peter. That's uh, true, but I, but, but I think there's there. just they're just they're I think just written as more dynamic characters. Sure, but I I will say I think Plemons just nails the scenes he's in. One of my favorite moments in the film is when they stop for that for mm-hmm. that picnic or it. whatever, and, and, and he. <laughs> Tea by the mountainside. Tea by the mountainside. It was just, just, I mean, the mountainside again, not Montana, <laughs> folks. This is not Montana, but really beautiful. And and I just, and, and it, he says so, something about the something about you know not being lonely anymore. It's just so mm-hmm. moving, and it was one of those things where it's just like it feels like you know you read into it because these because Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons are a real life couple, but it just seemed like this is the real life coupledness of those two paying off. Like this is, this just mm-hmm. felt like so much emotion between them and that point. And it's kind of a binding moment in a way, because I think there's a lot of reason for Rose to feel pretty disappointed <laughs> with her husband and the way mm-hmm. he, she's sort of left unprotected to Phil's. Um, the whole piano thing is just infuriating. It really is. And that's just one where he just straight up doesn't is not going to listen to her yeah. when she's trying to say, I can do this kind of thing. But I, you know, <laughs> whatever you're, you know, you do, whatever you're expecting me to, to do, I cannot do. Well, and just like the pressure he's putting on, like, like it, she maybe could have done it, but he's do it in front of the governor. Do it on this <laughs> yeah. grand piano I bought you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was never going to happen. Oh, God, how great for keith carradine to show up how great i loved it i loved it that he was that he was in that role yeah. nibs governor nibs Go- governor nibs <laughs> let's kind of let's go to the end let's let's skip to the end and, and uh, ask what you think because to me it felt very hitchcockian no 
Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think that yeah, I think that's a, a apt comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I how, how so? I want I want to know specifically what you mean because I, I think we and certainly Phil have underestimated Peter quite a bit. Mm-hmm. To me, it, the the moment where both Phil and the audience kind of gets an indicator of what we're sort of dealing with. Actually, there are probably two moments. One is when he's dissecting the rabbit uh, <laughs> that uh, much to the mm-hmm. shock of last night and Soho star uh, <laughs> of Mackenzie. Uh, is it Thomas and McKenzie? Uh, Thomas, Thomas and McKenzie. Yes, there's that. But the, but, but the scene where he just kind of like quietly snaps that rabbit's neck off screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was mm-hmm. just so chilling and also so in control like like it's like okay this kid is not scared you know he's not weak he is giving us an example of another kind of strength or another kind of you know deadly force that is quite a bit different from this chest beating variety that phil is giving us and so i get the feeling he's dangerous he doesn't have phil's number from the start like i think he's really intimidated by phil in the in for quite a while but like he takes it, I think he he kind of dissects him, you know, over yeah. the course mm-hmm. of the film. And once he figured out how he may, how he works, he, he's he knows how to trap him. It it is, and I actually I didn't see it coming. It was uh, it was quite. And I mean, once all the pieces yeah. fall into place, it's like this is this has been setting this up all along. It's, yes. it's quite brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It, from the from the very opening narration, the only uh, voiceover in in the film from Peter, you know, talking about how he has to protect his mom. You know, mm. like I I immediately remembered that when I when I realized what had happened. But yeah, there's so many just little seeds of it, like the the fact that Peter wears gloves and Phil does not. There's a point where Phil is kind of uh, trashing Rose to Peter about her being a drunk, and he says something about alcoholism. It's under A in your books, right? And you know what else is under A in those books? Anthrax. You know, there's yeah, oh yeah. And I also want to kind of gauge your guys' thoughts of like when the turn happens for like between Peter and Phil. Because for me, what there's that scene where they are out with, you know, all the cowboys, they're they're camped out and Peter is walking past them in his new jeans mm-hmm. and you know they're they're calling him the F slur. And he just sort of walks by them. He looks at some birds in a tree, I think, and then and then walks back. And that is when Phil reaches out to him and is interested in him all of a sudden. And at that point in the film, it feels like Phil is playing a long game. You know, that this is some new torment. But that slowly unravels over the, the subsequent scenes. And you see the power shift kind of... And I don't even want to call it a power shift because that doesn't really happen until like the, the very end where we realize what Peter has done. But just, I guess, in terms of recognition between the two characters, like that is a moment when Phil maybe sees something in Peter, or sees himself in Peter, I guess. And Peter has this knowledge, thanks to uh, uh, Bronco Henry's uh, big box of porn <laughs> about about Phil, you know, and so suddenly their dynamic gets a lot more fraught and interesting. Yeah, I mean, the reason why it's satisfying you, you, is that you do realize, oh, this the film has been setting you up this whole mm-hmm. time. I mean, right from the opening narration, as you say, because mm-hmm. because uh, Peter's does have this 
you know, instinct to protect his, his mom. And we learn more about his dad too, um, too. They have that conversation about, about, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and so the importance of his mother is, you know, under, underlined even further there. And so to me, it's almost like, I don't know when the point was, but I, I did start to think like, he is putting something, to, he's putting the pieces together. I mean, the movie is putting the pieces together for us too, a little bit about Phil, but it's putting, but a lot of those pieces are put together by things that Peter discovers. And so he's kind of putting the pieces together. And, and the fact that we had seen him dissect this rabbit before does show that he has a, this methodical way about him naturally, Peter. I mean, even putting together those flowers, those, those, which is just un, the most, the least masculine thing you could possibly be do except that he does it with a with a surgical skill <laughs> you know with well, a precision yeah. you know and, and there's something kind of like in the strangeness about him i mean it is you know from a physical standpoint certainly weak i mean he does not he looks absolutely absurd in, in this world a mm -hmm. lot of the time but uh, no one told him to soak his jeans <laughs> yeah so do something <laughs> yeah he's very stiff in those jeans but not you know not the strongest you know just and just has a he's just a, he's a odd looking fellow but you know the more we come to kind of know him there's just a there's he just has a quality to it to him and maybe phil kind of figures that out before without figuring out everything you know he, he figures out that peter has you know a quality that's that's beyond weakness it's different than weakness that that is more you know alluring and strange and enigmatic or however word you want to call it uh, but he, not, he doesn't necessarily see it as deadly until until that rabbit until he he snaps the rabbit's neck then it's like oh okay you're capable of that that's interesting <laughs> I, I love benedict cumberbatch's reaction to it because it probably kind of mirrors my own it's like whoa i, I can't, this just happened i can't believe it <laughs> i mean i think he's also recognizing in peter himself in relation to bronco henry you know bronco henry is the one who taught phil everything he knows and you know we see phil being very interested and eager to sort of pass on this knowledge to peter something he was reluctant to do before that uh, that turn that i that i talked about i i don't know that i ever necessarily read like any sort of fear from phil so much as you know just interest and sort and sort a narcissism to a certain point you know like i think he was he's was basically trying to recreate his relationship with with Bronco Henry, and saw the opportunity for that. He's surprised and I, by him, though. I mean, it, sure, I mean, sure. certainly the, the you know the, he sees the dog. He sees the barking dog. Mm -hmm. Nobody yes. else. Mm -hmm. Nobody sees the barking dog. That so so uh, so that that's something that he one one hundred percent has in common with. Yeah, Bronco Henry that and, and no one else not even Phil I mean it was it was uh, you know it's just like he can look out there and see something that nobody else can see and that is again a very surprising quality but I don't know it's, it is one of those things where it is so satisfying to have the film set up everything that you want that needs to be set up in order for Peter to pull off what he pulls off but without you guessing that that's where it's gonna that's what's gonna happen and, and, mm -hmm. and, and so that you know, the other the anthrax twist so is so good uh it, you know it's so well set up and then and then i just love the the very end of the movie i love like him with his gloves in the in the raw hide just being tucked underneath the mm -hmm. bed like that it's just again that felt like such a hitchcockian touch there was just such an yeah. such a kind of a kind of a macabre elegance to it you know it's uh it's an ice picking basic instinct 
Yeah, yes, exactly. One, <laughs> one of my favorite Hitchcock films, Basic Instinct. <laughs> Hitch- Hitchcockian, anyway. It is Hitchcockian. So I, I, it is all very satisfying, and I thought it became an even more interesting film when it became clear that uh, Phil was not going to to ultimately to to punk <laughs> to, for, for, to to punk Peter and 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 to foreign and further. But do we feel at all sorry for Phil? I mean, he kind of makes himself vulnerable. He opens mm-hmm. himself up, and you know, he is he is trying to do. It is. I think it is a lot of narcissism, as you say. But but it's not unkindness. He's directing toward 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 Peter. Is, is there any like a little bit of sympathy for the devil here? No. No. I, 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 yeah, and, and, <laughs> He's just too and much I, an I don't read what he was doing to Peter as kindness. Yeah. I, okay. you know, um, I, I read it as more nefarious. I mean, and it certainly involves kindness, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. but I don't think it, it came from any sort of goodness in the character. But, but he, he's, so, he's so tortured though. Is there any, <laughs> any, any pity there at all? I mean, I, the, you know, sympathy I do have for him comes from sort of the, the mirror relationship with, uh, uh, Peter and and Bronco Henry. It's a similar sort of torment. It's yeah. like a as a, mm. as a as a wussy classic scholar. Exactly. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's so, um to that degree I can, you know, feel some sympathy for the devil, but in terms of like his actions here like you know, I'm never going to say someone who is murdered has it coming to them, but I don't really see him as any sort of victim in this scenario. Um, yeah, God, but th- that just that comment just completely opened them. The, the idea of of Phil being being Peter at one time that just that I never that never occurred to me. I don't know why. That's pretty great. Good, good work, <laughs> good work on the observation front there. Um, uh, so, any anything else here? Any standout scenes? Anything we should get to before uh, before bringing in uh, Deliverance here? We haven't mentioned how good Kirsten Dunst is in this in this film either. You know, yeah, uh, uh, just a, a remarkable range within the, the same character and believable at every moment. I mean, she's she's you know very you know really believable as as, as the sort of. Mm, shy is not the quite word, but but sort of reserved re- restaurant owner, and then and then as as the lush, it's, it's she plays that so so well too. And she's so so many different shades of vulnerability, mm-hmm. through, you know, throughout. She's never the strong defensive mother, you, you know, mm-hmm. which would be like kind of I feel like the the cliche here, you know, like the she, she's not a mama bear. She does need her son to to protect her, you know. She she's weak. All these characters are are weak to a certain extent, um, but maybe that kind of gets us into one of our major connective themes. So right, I won't, well, I, uh, I, I, I'm gonna let's just leave that there then <laughs> uh, and just cut everyone off, and uh, we'll return uh, to talk more about the power of the dog in relation to deliverance in connections. Peter. You want me, Mr. Burbank? I don't see any Mr. Burbank here. I'm Phil. Yes, Mr. Burbank. I guess it's hard for young and like you to call an old fella like me just plain Phil at first. Now come and take a look at this. You done any braiding or plating yourself, Pete? No, I never have, sir. Peter, 
You kind of got off on the wrong foot. Did we, sir? Forget the sir stuff. That can happen to people. People who get to be good friends. Well, you know what? 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 Phil? Now, you see, you did it. You called me Phil. I'm going to finish this rope and give it to you and teach you how to use it. It's sort of a lonesome place out here, Pete. Unless you get in the swing of things. Thank you, Phil. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. You know, the big theme here, as uh, we've talked about on this show and in the show before, is the, the theme of masculinity and the way these genre films one a survival adventure film one a western examine that theme where, where the the stresses that they, that these characters are under bring bring out or create really <laughs> the problems here uh, because you know I, I think there you could see to my mind a lot of connections between Lewis and Phil and uh, Lewis from uh, the Burt Reynolds character in Deliverance oh, and, and Phil and the power of the dog and that they are alpha males, I guess. They are dominant characters. They they, they terrorize really uh, or, or heavily <laughs> cajole the people around them, influence their behavior, like to like to be the ones who are determining the action, even when, when other people say you know are protesting i mean there you know there's a scene early on in uh deliverance when they're just driving down to the lake you know the, i'm not sure who's in the passenger seat but they're screaming at at lewis to just to kind of slow down and or to mm -hmm. you know or to to wait to get instructions about where to go like he, they they've never been in this area why is he going so fast etc and and it's because this is the pose that he is is taken this is this this confidence and then and in both films um, we see that there are huge consequences to that. And, and, and some of those consequences are to the characters around uh, Phil and, and Lewis who are having sort of, you know, driven to, you know, actions that they would not take otherwise. And some of those actions kind of ricochet back at them as well, you know, and Lewis and, and Phil also, you know, they, their own toxic masculinity becomes a, a, a kind of, you know, poison for them as well. So uh, uh, what, what, what else do you think, I guess, um, on this theme of masculinity? Did you see these two films sharing? Well, I mean, you already referred to it as a pose they're putting on. And I think that is, you know, sort of a, a key here as well, that they are both to a certain extent performing masculinity. Like, you know, we talked, uh, I mentioned that bit of dialogue and deliverance about, uh, you know, Lewis not actually being one with nature, you know, and kind of pretending at it to, to some extent. And, you know, we, we just talked about uh, Phil's background and, and how he maybe adopted this uh, this rugged character to a certain extent. Um, so, you know, I think there is an element of, of performance to their toxic masculinity as, as well. Um, the degree to which they are aware of it, of course, uh, is, is up for debate. Um, but also, I just wanted to note one sort of like sub connection between these two characters, which is that they both make fun of other characters' weights, <laughs> like loudly mm. and, oh, and repeatedly. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Lewis calls Bobby uh, chubby, I think. 
and uh peter calls jorah's fatso throughout mm-hmm. so there you know Real there's original insults yeah here. i know i know right given to this. <laughs> yeah he's capable yeah. so much more come on yeah <laughs> do better phil uh with yeah. your insults but just that insult specifically i i think maybe speaks a little bit about to the um you know they, they both maybe have a certain hang up about uh, the the physical appearance of, of a real man and how strength is portrayed physically. Absolutely. But I think, yeah. you know, one thing though about deliverance is that, is that there is a point at which, you know, Ed, I guess, has to man up. I mean, he has to show, he has mm-hmm. to show a, a strength that he did not show himself to um, mm-hmm. be capable of earlier in the film. He has to be, he has to be able to, work the bow you know he has to be able to fire to fire that the, the shot when pressed or maybe he does, but he it. does it so but he does it he doesn't like suddenly become like the the hero like he still shakes you know he falls on his arrow <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, no like they're, he, they're, right he does he does he does not the um pressure does, does not necessarily steady his <laughs> right. steady his, his shot at, at, at all he is sort of forced into a role that he uh wouldn't have been inclined to take i mean i think there was a sense that that the other three guys were going to yield to Lewis on this Lewis, who has all of this confidence and who seems to, you know, at least projects that he knows what he's doing. And and now Ed is going to have to put, play this role where like, you know, uh, where Drew's gone and Lewis is horribly injured and Bobby has been through what Bobby has been through. And now it's, and uh, they're still faced with these, terrible challenges and, and and terrible dangers and he's going to have to kind of come through and uh again man up for lack of a better term and bring them through uh but i also think there's kind of a way of in both films you know with ed's character and then also with peter's character of a different kind of strength a different kind of mm-hmm. masculinity finding its way through of, of it not being this this tough guy pose but something you know, equally dangerous and in lethal and strong. And Peter has that. Peter has that clinical power that, that you know that that surprises everyone and, and ultimately gives him the upper hand. So the way he poses or the way he is really ends up being this grand deception when it comes to the to the actual plotting of the of the film. And I, I think we also maybe see another strain or idea at least about masculinity or at least the idea of of a man providing for a woman uh we see like kind of two different ideas of that in uh peter and and george Mm. uh you know like george i think is an interesting character to consider uh in this connection kind of similar to to drew um in in deliverance because they are sort of the the farthest removed from the sort of rugged macho man ideal that is kind of presented as the default of uh, or, the, or the default masculine ideal you know in, in in both of these films but um what you know george also is compelled to to rescue rose like right from the beginning like he's drawn to her and he he wants to save her and he provides for her uh lavishly with uh you know material things uh material comforts but is not there for her in any way when it comes to like protecting her from from phil that falls to peter again to go back to that opening line of his about protecting his mom you know like both of those characters are very invested in you know protecting and providing for rose but in in very different ways and by very different means 
Yeah, and that kind of brings us to an, another theme I wanted to get into that's really present in both films, which is which is you know the theme of progress and of, of civilization because we see in uh, you know uh, that's how Deliverance opens, of course, uh, is is that progress comes in the form of completely altering the landscape uh, around this community in the remote Georgia mountains that presumably some some <laughs> slick politician has got the is passed this <laughs> destructive uh, law and and uh, now they're going to now the locals are going to take it out on these four people so that so that that is the what, what progress looks like and also what reaction against progress looks like and then we're kind of getting you know this uh you know end of the west thing happening in the power of the dog where we see all of these signs of modernity that are have crept into ranch life we see you know, a, a car, you know, we see, you know, all, all of these fineries, people, you know, living in a more sophisticated way. And Phil is outside of all of that. And in a way, this is a very complicated, long-winded thought, so st- stick with me. But but I, mm-hmm. I, I was watching a, you know, another film about progress. You know, I did a little seminar, Once Upon a Time in the West, which is one of my favorite movies, which is about a train that's being built through through this town and and of course the train being the ultimate sign of of, of progress right of, of taming the west and one of the things that occurred to me when i watched that film and watched the end of that film was that certain characters you know charles bronson in particular but also jason robards in the movie were not made to live in the future <laughs> these are not people you know and phil is that way too that phil is phil is of a type that is going to be left in the past and that doesn't belong in the future. And it seems like the way things sort themselves out at the end of the power of the dog, that things are settled. Like, like, like we can see this more sophisticated, you know, progressive civilized world taking shape and seeming less, you know, more natural than, than when Phil was, was in it kind of screwing things up and kind of trying to drag everything back where, where it shouldn't be. Would you go so far, speaking of once upon time, once upon time in the West, to say that men like that have something inside them, something to do with death? <laughs> I'm quoting the film. Anyway, uh, no, I, I, there's, there's, there's an interesting thing here too, where in a sense that Phil will likely be displaced, but there is another displaced group of people, uh, more referred to than seen, but the, 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 the indigenous people that, that are, are, you know, early on, we talked, they're, they're talked about how they can't camp out there. You got to run them off. Mm. And then you get the scene where, where, where Adam Beach's character and his son come through asking for the, for the hides that are just going to be burnt anyway. And like, there's, although in some ways they're both characters, uh, who have, uh, in some ways, you think Phil ought to see himself in, in people who have been kind of left behind by history. He doesn't. He, he hates them. I mean, he hates everything, but per, he just refuses to see any kind of uh, uh, sympathy there uh, whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. I I was struck right away because I watched this after Deliverance and I had already sort of picked up on the progress versus civilization theme. Watching Car of the Dog, I was immediately struck by Phil's discomfort and resentment in the restaurant you know, like mm. uh, when they arrive in the town um, and, you know, he he posts up in sort of the the makeshift bar whorehouse to take shots with the boys. And George is like, no, let's go over and have dinner, you know, <laughs> at this nice restaurant. And there's all these people in there and he, there's a piano that he dislikes uh, again with the piano. He seems disgusted by the idea that there is uh, something 
like a restaurant, you know, that people would gather at. Yeah, they, they would they would have like real cooked meals yeah. with courses, the, you know, because like, he had talked about in the past about like the napkin over over Peter's arm. Oh, yeah. you know, the, 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 the flowers, it, just like all these sort of symbols of I, I don't necessarily want to call it like civilization or they're, they're civilized touches, let's say yeah. that Phil just uh, resents on principle. You know, is it, and isn't there kind of a line in the film about when they're asking about what you do in the past, what you do in the old days about for food? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like it, it, they were talking about having some kind of gross sounding thing by, by the, yeah. at the bar. <laughs> that was kind yeah. of what, yeah, that if it, it, otherwise they just drank a lot, right? Or, right, you know, so, exactly. Uh, yeah. And so, this is this is a, a terrible somehow terrible <laughs> violation yeah. of that uh yeah. policy to, to have you know what sounds like pretty good fried chicken and you know it look, looks like a tossed salad you could have a tossed salad some wine pretty good <laughs> pretty good spread yeah. pretty good spread for 1925 montana i, I should say it, here's a question yeah if, if somehow phil and lewis were to hang out together would they be <laughs> best friends or would one kill the other that's interesting because they, I think they, they would be inclined to accept each other, except one of them needs to be in charge. Yeah, that's and just I don't it, think either one right? of them yeah. would yield to the other one. I think, I think there'd be a conflict there for sure. Which one ends up being more of a poser? They're both posers. I think Lewis is more of a sort of a, a weekender, you know, mm-hmm. like, like we, I, I, we don't know exactly what he does, but his livelihood is not uh, out of doors, uh, one with nature-ness, uh, the way that Phil is, even if it is sort of a lifestyle that he has yeah, contrived like, like for models himself. models on, on carpets for uh, magazines. <laughs> right yeah Yeah. hot stuff um but you know phil might like that phil might like that that picture it would fit right in with buck henry's or bronco henry's big box of porn or buck henry's you know i I, every time i want to say buck henry (laughs) oh well this is it there's so there's some really interesting crossover potential here see you know we thought for a second it would be like do these movies have anything in common besides the whole dueling banjos thing it's like no this is masculinity and now we're getting into like a movie crossover with uh, these two characters uh phil burbank and and lewis i don't know but yeah interesting to think about the way they relate to each other and i think that's kind of a a dynamic that you do see among men you know and it's an unspoken dynamic it it, you know phil is phil is their leader because he's the one with the money too i mean don't 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 forget that i mean he's got all of these other ranchers who he's bossing around but one the reason he one reason he can boss them around is that he holds the purse he's their boss (laughs) right uh so so uh, that that helps clarify things but but he certainly carries himself you know in a way that is um intimidating and meant to intimidate uh the the other men And, and that's an order that i think men fall into all, all the time i mean you even see it you know we see it on twitter <laughs> in fact i mean you can see you can see a bull you can see if somebody is a bully on twitter then you can see a cadre of other people who follow them who are kind of following their lead it, it kind of mm-hmm. it, there does become this kind of pack mentality that happens uh where people kind of organize around you know the stronger figure and uh and that that's kind of what happens you know in both films very Lord of the Flies esque. Yeah, that's the way it works with us, bros. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why everyone's. That's why everyone's uh, as scared of me as they are. Um, uh, <laughs> I always get that laugh. No one. No one. No. no. <laughs> Where's the respect? Where's the respect? My wife and daughters are laughing at me all all, all night long. It's ridiculous. Anyway, uh, 
Yeah, this is neither. This has nothing to do. <laughs> that's all. That's for my therapist. That has nothing to do with uh, this podcast. So, yeah, another theme here too is a, it does has to do with survival. I mean, these are these are two uh, scenarios where these characters are out in nature. They have to to know what they're doing uh, because nature can be a very unforgiving place. Um, so I, I was curious to hear from you all what, you know, if you felt how the sort of the classic man versus nature theme sort of applied to the, both of these movies. I think it's really in some ways more pronounced in deliverance because there is a real sense of, I'd say in many ways more pronounced in deliverance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is a real sense of helplessness and these people who are completely unprepared to be in the environment they're in uh as part, as part of what it makes it i think it's it's very easy as as city slickers to use uh, the phrase it's got like so much to to project yourself in that situation and realize how completely screwed <laughs> you'd be and whereas the characters in power of the daughter at least you know some somewhat they don't venture that far into the untamed wilderness at any point in the film no uh there's reference to it but also they sleep they, in their beds every night well i guess yeah. they do go camp you know right. but but they are not phil in particular is not roughing it in nature he's roughing it in his very nicely appointed mansion mm-hmm. uh in which he has chosen this to, to sleep in a room with two twin beds and nothing else in it i don't really see a a whole lot of sort of man versus nature in power of the dog at least not expressed the way that it is in deliverance where we see like the power of of nature you know um power of the dog it's like yes they're in nature but they're also in this very you know civilized sort of pocket of it that they've created for themselves and can kind of venture out in during the day and come home at night it's almost Um, like the, the postscript of a man versus nature where nature lost yeah, totally. But where I do see it a little bit in Power of the Dog is in the nature of uh, Phil's death. You know, uh, anthrax is a, a disease uh, out that comes from livestock, you know, and uh, it comes from how Phil engages with the natural world. And so there's like a deep irony there, I think, in that being what does him in, although it's filtered through this very sort of convoluted uh, scheme of Peter's. Yes. I, I guess uh, I'll, I'll ask you, since you know this was your connection. Do you see a sort of man versus nature element in in Power of the Dog that I'm I'm missing? I guess not quite as much as, as you explain it. There's but, certainly, you do, but, but I think there is a Phil does demand uh, d- expect, I guess, other men to be able to mm-hmm. work in that environment to be able to. Um, fend for themselves to be able to ride a horse properly to be you know i mean that's what mm-hmm. the whole idea the whole sensible reason anyway that he takes peter under his wing is that he's going to kind of show him how to function in nature and thus kind of teach him more to be a man so and how to take mud baths in the in the creek right taking mud baths <laughs> uh uh yeah really counterintuitive uh bathing in mud um and uh it is a, a, ends up being a somewhat of a point of contrast with the piano, which which this film has a lot in common with the piano, but the piano, the nature is such a force in that in that movie, and it is it is it is at war with civilization in a way that it is not in uh, the power of the dog. In the, in the power of the dog, they have tamed uh, this environment to the point to where they have the this ranch and these fineries. In the piano, uh, nature is 
constantly trying to just gobble up whatever progress <laughs> gets made and, and and when you in the attempt by Sam Neill's character to civilize that an environment you know is often reduced to folly and often reduced to you know <laughs> mud and and uh you know just nothing nothing quite uh you know it, it's, it's a battle he fights and loses that's a that's much more of a man versus nature type of thing and and, and those who work their way through nature like the Harvey Keitel character and like the Holly Hunter character in that movie, uh, they end up being better off uh, because they, they because they fit more naturally in that environment. At this point, I guess in time, uh, nineteen twenty five, you know the the Wild West has been has been tamed a, a, a bit, um, certainly by a family like uh, the Burbanks. They're so, so dominant over nature, they can just reach in and rip out those testicles and. <laughs> oh God! Oh man! Oh, what yeah. a scene! Sorry, yeah. I think I better interrupt. something that actually contributes to the conversation, Jenny. <laughs> no, well, no, uh, that's that's actually a, a a very literal illustration of man versus nature, I suppose. Um, and I, I was just going to say, sitting here uh, listening to you talk, I did kind of think of another way this you know theme is sort of expressed in Power of the Dog, subtly, but it just visually, I guess, is how damn big the mountains are and how small these people are in comparison and how they are framed as small and puny and uh, maybe petty uh, in their uh, problems in the bigger frame of these massive ancient New Zealand mountains. <laughs> <laughs> we were just, uh, oh, Jade Campion's just going to be... She's gonna. She's not gonna like it when she listens to this podcast. The razzing, the razzing of New Zealand is relentless. They're they're great. Incredible. Mountains. They're no, they're, no they're one's I, saying I, anything I, bad about New Zealand. No, is, uh, they're, they're very good natural mountains. Beauty. They they are they are not the rockiest of mountains. No, I, I might say. no, no, they are not. Uh, but uh, but good good for good is good good effort. It still still works. Still works as a film. We we would say. So before we wrap up, I do want to bring up maybe a sort of sensitive connection between these two films. Um, trigger warning for uh, sexual assault, sexual predation. You know, we do see two sort of very different types of predators in these films, and I think especially in the context of films about masculinity, that's interesting just because so often in stories where predation is a a part of the story, it is man-on-woman violence. And that's not really here we obviously there's the the horrible uh rape scene in in deliverance it's a shocking and it's an uncomfortable scene but it's just this one scene you know you know and it's obviously like the scene it's the turning point but it's like an isolated incident it's a an explosion of violence mm-hmm. and in power of the dog what we're seeing is like i said it's very suggestive it's not you know on the surface at all i think you could watch the film without even really picking up on it but if you do pick up on it i think it feels incredibly nefarious and ominous uh, it, it adds a new sort of layer to uh phil's threatening nature you know so I, I did did you guys pick up on that uh at all i'm curious in power of the dog or is that just something i'm well i, I, yeah, I'm kinda, I guess i'm kind of wondering about how you might imagine the relationship between phil and bronco henry having gone mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh, it, it, because there does seem to be you know a certain amount of you know i mean phil thinks fondly of of that relationship and, and mm-hmm. misses him and and you know and uh you know has that 
you know, moment, those moments with his uh, handkerchief mm-hmm. and, and all those things feel romantic. But at the same time, Bronco Henry clearly turned him into a person that he wasn't necessarily before. And that person, the person that he was before was maybe somebody he, that he recognizes Peter to be now. So, so you wonder about like what, you know, obviously there is, a, there's an evolution towards a type of relationship here <laughs> that recreates yeah. what he had with Bronco Henry. I don't think there's any like clear evidence in the film. Like, I think it's just as likely that they had a consenting adult relationship. Although I guess I would want to go back and check the dates on uh, Bronco Henry's uh, shrine. I I know he was 50 when he died, but I'd I'd be curious to know what sort of age differential we're Mm. we're talking about uh, between the two of them, because that could be a factor. Yeah. But, you know, this could be just something that Phil is doing on his own. It's not necessarily repeating a a, a past behavior. But I think where the alarm bells really started sounding for me is when Phil started trying to um, uh, wedge himself between Peter and his mom. That scene in the barn is where that just really kind of clicked for me. But as to whether it is directly related to what Phil went through with Bronco Henry, I can't strongly state that. It's just kind of a feeling I get. Yeah, I mean, the separation you could also say, you could also talk about it as being just simply necessary for a relationship like this. A relationship like this would definitely have to happen you know, in secret, but it's interesting. I I do. I I really, I'm interested in that thought because I, again, it wasn't something that occurred to me watching the the movie, but, but I think it's a really good read on it. You know, I mean, this is such, such a rich text, uh, both of these movies, but power of the dog, especially just like there's, it has a lot of things that are very bold and very on the surface. And then it has these other little things that you can kind of pick at a little bit that are a little more under the surface um, that maybe come out, you know, and repeat viewings or, or if you, or if you're particularly sharp, if you're a Genevieve Kosky type, uh, maybe just the one <laughs> viewing. Um, and then and if the, you're immediately looking for the worst in humanity at every turn, <laughs> yeah, she's found it. She finds it. So, um, yeah. So you, our listeners uh, have a chance to uh, watch both of these films as often as you want, because Deliverance is currently streaming on HBO Max. It's also widely available on DVD and Blu-ray and the usual streaming services. Uh, the Power of the Dog is exclusively on Netflix. It was doing a little bit of a theatrical run. I don't know uh, if that will last too much longer, um, because that's the way these things go. Uh, See but if you can, though. It looks, it looks great on the big screen. Oh, uh, it surely does. Oh, my goodness. But uh, we will be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time for your next picture show where we catch each other up on films or film related items that you may want to seek out too. Genevieve, what in the film or television world <laughs> has been good for you lately? Thank you, Scott, for that. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, end, end of the year is a big uh, crush time for us, uh, you know, media folk, uh, you mm-hmm. know, and you guys are cramming movies and I, because of my job, am cramming uh, TV shows, which does not leave a lot of time for uh, non-podcast essential movie watching, I'm sorry to say. Although, you know, I'm looking forward to to catching up when I can. But for now, I've been powering through all of the many, many television shows that are premiering in, in December, and I wanted to highlight 
one that is uh, premiering December 16th, so shortly after uh, you listen to this, probably, on HBO Max. And that is Station Eleven, which is a, a adaptation of actually originally supposed to be a film adaptation. So there's there's my my slight connect my slight film connection, um, but it is now a ten episode miniseries of the 2014 novel by uh, Emily St. John Mandel, which saw a, a big surge in popularity at the very beginning of the pandemic when we all <laughs> were for some reason just dying to uh, consume pandemic stories out of I, I don't even know what that was all about. Mm-hmm. But uh, at that point, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, this uh, Station Eleven was already in production. It is a, you know, pandemic story. It sort of it takes place along multiple timelines, sort of the uh, outbreak of a, a flu pandemic that uh, takes out a large portion of the population and sort of in 20 years later, you know, what is left of, of civilization. And its main focus is sort of on a traveling troupe of actors uh, performing Shakespeare around Michigan, which I, I, I like yeah. because I'm in Michigan. Um, and actually the um, miniseries moves sort of the inciting action of the the flu outbreak from, I believe, Toronto in the book to Chicago in, in the miniseries. So, you know, just really getting me with the locations mm-hmm. alone in this. Um but, you know, sort of by virtue of it being, you know, a story about this uh, troop of actors, it winds up being kind of less about survival in this new uh, world and more about just art, uh, the importance of art or the idea that, you know, art is necessary to humanity's survival. And it's got, you know, several kind of interesting and complex relationships that keep the story very human-centric, even as it becomes this like fairly sprawling kind of apocalyptic slash cult narrative. There's a cult, too. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, it's it has some really incredible performances, including one by Mackenzie Davis, who I believe oh, we are all quite, quite a fan of. Yeah. And she has a, I'd say probably the toughest role uh, in in this story, and she handles it very capably. There's also uh, Hamish Patel. I believe he was in uh, Tenet and um, Yesterday. He's he's very good hero as well. Um, so, and Lori Petty also pops up. Oh, in a, a very a, Yeah, yeah. So, a uh, lot, lots of uh, good performances and lots of like, oh, I love that actor uh, uh, throughout. It's showrun by Patrick Somerville, who was a writer on The Leftovers and Maniac, um, and also was a showrunner for a Another uh, HBO Max series that I liked quite a bit called Made for Love came out earlier this year. Um, and it's directed by Hiro Mori, uh, who's this very accomplished music video director who's been working in TV more of late, including several episodes of Atlanta and Barry. Oh, um, right. So yeah. it's it's a, it's a very it's like, nice looking yeah, uh, no, miniseries. Really Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, very good pedigree all around from the, the source material to... Oh, look at you. Mm, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I mean, I don't want to get too far into the twists and turns of the plot, uh, because if you've read the novel, you you know it, um, and I don't want to spoil the ways that the, uh, the miniseries diverts. And if you don't know anything, I think that's a, a great way to go into this story. So uh, I'm not going to tell you a whole lot more about Station Eleven, other than that uh, I think you should check it out. The first, I believe, three episodes premiere on December 16th, and then they're rolling out, I think, two a week after that. And then the one, I don't know, HBO Max's uh, rollout's cadence is very weird. <laughs> Just a little sidebar from okay. my job, my day job. But um that That's is true. Station. Like the flight attendant was kind of hiccupy, wasn't it? The release of yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Kind of a weird hybrid of dump everything or week release week to week. It's like, nope, we got some other weird system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I watch these all in more or less one go on, on, on screeners, so I, I can't say how they, uh, you know, how it works as a sustained viewing experience, but I suspect it will be just as rewarding. Uh, so you can check it out on HBO Max starting this week, Station Eleven. So ju just to be clear, this is a miniseries. This is the whole novel. This is the setup for yes, okay. ten, ten episode miniseries. Yeah, cause I, I love the, I love the book, but I, but I don't necessarily want it five seasons of it. So yeah, that's yeah. Fine. <laughs> uh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Uh, Did you say I, I, you want you want to hear mine? Want to hear mine? Yeah, Keith. Sure. What's good for you? Uh, <laughs> I don't like you. I've been, I haven't been watching. I need to watch all of. I need to watch all of Station Eleven for one thing. Uh, so I've <laughs> I've you know movies uh, for uh, for the show, movies I'm writing about, movies for end of the year stuff. But I did squeeze in. Well, I, I wrote about it too. But for the reveal, the newsletter that Scott and I uh, run together, the reveal.substack.com, I wrote about Menace to Society, the Hughes Brothers de uh, debut film, which I had not seen for a long time, and it remains a very impressive and disturbing uh film uh that doesn't uh well i mean it, it, it is part of a, a, a stream of like 90s uh early 90s sort of uh inner city life crime thriller slash dramas uh that, that kind of got kicked off with with boys in the hood but uh it is uh, of that is it is a fairly um merciless example of, of of that uh type of film uh where you don't really it doesn't really give you any sympathetic characters are the closest thing we have is a somewhat passive um, protagonist who opens the movie by witnessing a horrific crime and not doing anything about it. And then slowly becomes uh, not even that slowly becomes a murderer himself. Um, it is, uh, uh, it is very stylish. It is very much uh, the work of, of two young hungry filmmakers who, who um, have thought about how their, their role models like Scorsese and, and, and old gangster movies, but also how to put their own spin on, on, on what they learned there. Uh, and it, it is a, uh, it's a tough film. I, I'm glad it's, I, you can, it picked up a following right away. I'm glad it stuck around. It, it was nice to revisit it via this new Criterion edition, which is part of their first of their, or their four Ks they're putting out. Uh, if you haven't seen it in a while, uh, check it out. If you've never seen it at all, it's, it's worth your time. It is, it is, it is, you know, in, in the, in the, uh, not unlike uh, Deliverance and even Power of the Dog is is a is a tough set at times too. It's it's a tough film to watch, but but uh, worth your time. Scott, yeah. how about you? Well, to, to piggyback on what you're saying about Minister Society, I, I very strongly remember seeing that in a theater, not actually seeing it since, but 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 which is odd because I had a very positive reaction to it when I saw it. They, there mm -hmm. the, there was a real influx of films by black filmmakers at the time, independent films, and then a couple of films that studios put out that were not of very high budgets, that being one, and Boys in the Hood being another. And um, this was the one that excited me the most. This is the one that I felt was the, the most put together style-wise, and that was the most bracing in terms of its nihilism. I mean, like the darkness yeah. of it was like, you know, Boys in the Hood was kind of reaching toward some kind of redemption, some kind of hope that there was going to be somebody who could take um, you know, the father's whatever values in, into the future and, and make something of himself. Like there's at least that threat of it. Like not everybody was going to not, it wasn't going to be completely bleak. Men's society struck me as completely bleak and I, I really respected mm -hmm. for it at the time. Uh, always curious about how it turned out. Uh, Hughes brothers uh, you know, had such a kind of a spotty career generally since and i know i was fairly disappointed by dead presidents i think was the follow-up that i didn't it's I stylish did. though I, it's, it's, it's fun i like stylish. to revisit it it's got a you know um, maybe it's probably better than i remember it um yeah but um uh any case uh um uh my i wanted to 
point out something that I also wrote about a little bit on the, the reveal um, because I discovered uh, the work of Ryosuke uh, Hamagachi, this uh, Japanese filmmaker uh, who uh, has done uh, quite a few films, but he kind of, he, he, first sort of burst onto the festival scene with a five-hour film called Happy Hour, which you can currently see on Criterion Channel. And then in 2018, he did a film called Asaka 1 and 2, which is also on Criterion Channel. And I watched that one. Uh, very good film. And then through kind of a weird, you know, COVID-related accident of timing, he ended up coming out, putting together two movies that came out this year. And both of them are going to be on my top 10 list. Uh, one is called uh, a Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, and it's sort of a triptych of different um, stories uh, that have certain thematic connections. All three stories are mesmerizing, the second especially. And then he has this movie, Drive My Car, uh, which is my favorite. Uh, and that one is, uh, it just came out um, and is going to kind of roll out. You know, it's doing the usual New York, LA thing, and it's going to kind of roll out from there. And it's a it's a three-hour film. It's an adaptation of a, of a Murakami short story very similar to burning in that respect of just taking a short story and then making an incredibly long film out of it uh but it's so mesmerizing and so beautiful and so multi-layered um it's about a uh, the, the hero is is a is a hamaguchi like director he but he directs theater and um you know in the beginning of the film he has this um you know interesting relationship to his his wife it, she you know she's a tv writer and uh and they come up with stories together in a, in a in a very uh let's say intimate way and he kind of discovers that she's had this affair uh and then and then shortly thereafter she dies of a cerebral brain hemorrhage and so cut to two years later he is in uh, hiroshima uh, doing a version of Uncle Vanya, and uh, and one of the people that he casts in this production is her lover, <laughs> who is an actor. Uh, it, 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 so you wonder what why he's done that, and what what he ultimately has in, in in store for this guy. But the central relationship in Drive My Car is between him and his driver. One of the one stipulation this theater company has is that he be driven to his residence and to the theater back and forth, uh, that he not do his own driving. Uh, he resists this because because he it's a distance it's a great it's a kind of a distance and he likes to use that time to run lines with himself run run lines that have been recorded on cassette but he ends up ha he ends up kind of getting into it and and this driver uh she's very quiet uh but the two of them kind of eventually form a relationship and uh, it's very hard for me to really describe all of the things that kind of come out of that relationship because this movie has so much to say. I mean, there's so much going on about the power of art, about, you know, theater. It's about, it's got all these allusions to Uncle Vanya. It's got, you know, I, it reflects very interestingly and deeply on this relationship that he had in the, with his wife and, and how, you know, people are fundamentally unknowable in certain respects. Like you can be as close as you can to them and think that you understand them. Uh, and then there, there could be sides of them that, that are revealed to you that you had no idea about at all. And, 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 uh, and it's all these mysteries that are just, that are just kind of just unfurl beautifully, uh, uh before you. And, uh, I, I just, I can't recommend seeing it enough. Uh, it's hard for me to, to put into words. It was actually incredibly hard for me to write the piece I did about, Hamaguchi in general because it was because his stuff is so Murakami like in the sense that you're just they, it just has a certain quality that isn't obvious 
but is still special. And that's what this guy is all about. Drive My Car, it, it would be a shock to me if I saw another film this year that would be better than Drive My Car to give you, you know, and the, the other film, Wheel of mm, Fortune and Fantasy. Sounds like is, a preview is, uh, of a top 10 list. It really, it, yes, de- most definitely. So, um, so uh, really, if you have any chance at all to see it in a theater projected, whatever, if it, it, or see it, period, in any, in any way, shape, or form, uh, do it and, and i would recommend for the time being you know I, i've heard great things about happy hour which i have not seen osaka one and two is on criterion channel both of them are on criterion channel and uh I, I can definitely recommend that that's a really wonderful movie too uh the sky's awesome uh rizuki hamaguchi uh that's my recommendation and that's it for this edition of the next picture show our next pairing is december 21st and 28th Genevieve, what do we have on tap? Guillermo del Toro is involved with so many film and TV projects at any given moment that it can be surprisingly easy to miss when something's coming up that he actually directed. But the new noir thriller Nightmare Alley is pure del Toro, the first movie he's directed since 2017's Best Picture Oscar winner, The Shape of Water. This one's an oddity in del Toro's filmography, with no fantasy or science fiction elements in the mix. It's a remake of the 1947 Edmund Golding noir Nightmare Alley, also about an arrogant mentalist whose ambitions outrun his common sense. We'll compare Guillermo del Toro's modern period piece with Goulding's noir-era original next on The Next Picture Show. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Deliverance, The Power of the Dog, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. You can find my work at Vulture.com, where I am the senior TV editor. And you can find me uh, occasionally, sporadically retweeting something here and there on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. (laughs) (laughs) Keith, how about you? Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find my uh, you can find me on on Twitter at kfips3000.com uh, or for such places as The Ringer and Vulture and GQ and uh, The Reveal, which we mentioned before. It's the newsletter that Scott and I run and publish quite regularly, and it's all it's all wonderful stuff. It says that the uh, uh, what is it again? Is it thereveal.substack.com? Scott. Do you also enjoy the reveal? Yeah, the reveal. I write for that uh, a, a lot, uh, and then I also uh, you find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, my other work is in uh, Vulture, it's in Variety, it's in uh, Guardian, and the New York Times, and other fine publications. Uh, you can find our co-host Tasha's work uh, at uh, Polygon, where she is the film and streaming uh, editor, and you can find her on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it and please consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast, which is ours. Thanks to Dan <laughs> the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>